What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. I'm Greg Olson, and this is TE1, the podcast where we explore the evolution of the tight end position through conversations with some of the best players of all time. Hey everybody, what's up? And welcome to TE1. I'm your host, Greg Olson, and today I'll be talking to Ozzie Newsom. So once we knew we wanted the story to begin with Mike Dicka, we needed to navigate this 60-year journey and make sure we covered each era with the game changer of those different eras. We had so many unique and interesting people, but there was one name that we knew could carry the torch and continue to move this story forward. He's incredibly relevant as an NFL general manager, drafted the last NFL MVP, first African-American general manager in the NFL, and that's Ozzie Newsom. You know, here was a guy that just brought so much to the table, not only as a tight end to tell that story, but just tell his story, starting back in his early childhood days, growing up in a segregated South, the personal conversations he had with Bear Bryant and the impact that Coach Bryant had on him as a person and him as a player at Alabama. And then through his days as a player with the Browns, shortly after he retires as a player, he finds himself working in the front office, Bill Belichick. This was his first head coaching stop and Ozzie's his director of personnel. And one day, Art Modell up and moves the franchise to Baltimore, and he talks about running the franchise as the pseudo-general manager. He doesn't really have the title, but he's acting in such a role, and they're working out of a police precinct. They have no facilities. He's getting ready for his first draft. I mean, just the insight in the stories that someone like Ozzy can share, um, both professionally and, and especially personally, is just so relevant to today. The most important topic, at least for me personally, is after 14 years, I finally got to ask him why in 2007, two spots before I was drafted to Chicago, why he didn't draft me. And I put him on the spot. So here's my conversation with Ozzie Newsom. Well, Ozzie, first and foremost, we wanted to go back to the beginning to the 60s with Mike Dicka yourself and through your stories and through your perspective, just kind of share what that 60-year journey of this position has really been like. And to have you a part of this series is not only a treat for me, but it's just a treat for everyone who's going to tune in. And I just want to say thank you for agreeing to be a part of this. Thanks, Greg. Uh, I'm glad to be a part, uh, you know, starting back with with Mike and working all the way through uh, the guys that are playing, you know, at the position right now. Uh, I think I was a part of the transition that happened at the position, uh, basically was a wide receiver at Alabama uh, that got converted to tight end. And I remember uh, my first mini camp and Sam Retigliano called me in his office and said, we're going to move you to tight end, but we want you, we're going to throw you the football. That's why we're doing it. And I think that started the evolution then Kellen came behind me, Todd Christensen, and then the, the numbers just start to get bigger and bigger. Uh, I think what was happening, Greg, is the cover two became a dominant coverage uh, in the National Football League where they were doubling 
the two receivers on the outside because they felt like the tight end was not a threat. But when you had an athlete at tight end, then, you know, you was matching him up against a linebacker. Now the advantage went to the tight end and went to the offense. And I think that started the evolution. I think that conversation is every tight end's dream when, when your coach pulls you into his office and says, hey, we're going we're gonna to put you at tight end and we're putting you there for the sole purpose of throwing you the ball. I think that's, that's music to, to every tight end out there. I, I think a lot of people obviously are very familiar with you as a Super Bowl winning general manager and personnel director, Hall of Fame player, storied Alabama collegiate career. And I just want to go back to the beginning. I think it's so cool to hear the perspective and the roots of, of, of people like yourself and the story and the perspective that, that you come from and just, and go back to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, 1956, you're born, the area where you grew up and, and really our country was in, you know, very difficult times, very contentious times. You lived through it. You attacked a lot of it head on. I'd like you to just give us a little perspective and just give us a little background on growing up, personal experiences, and how that has helped shape you to become the man, the successful man you've been, not only in football, but just in your personal life. Well, I mean, uh, growing up in Alabama in the 60s and the 70s, you know, there was segregation uh, and there was integration and there was also some racism that was a part of it. And what you came to realize is you recognize what was going to happen and you had to make a decision as to do I want to get involved in this or do I try to avoid this, you know, uh, to make sure you live another day. Uh, at, and I was in the fifth grade, segregation ended and integration started. And so in the sixth grade, I was able to go to an, a predominantly white school and to interact with people that I was not able to do for my first five years of um, elementary school. And, and it was different. But I think uh, the equalizer in everything has always been sports. And as I entered into the, the that sixth grade, I remember <laughs> that, you know, we went out for a softball game and I was the last person to get chosen. And that was a little bit of a, a slap in the face. But uh, you know, I, I accepted that. But by the end of that school year, I was the captain and making all the choices. <laughs> the changed, yes, they did. Uh, based on my athletes. But, you know, it was, uh, I, I talked to people about this uh, over the course of the last month. And the reason why I went to Alabama is because they wouldn't allow us to go to Alabama and then they gave us a chance. But then it was a chance that I could go, but then some of the white football players that wanted to go to Alabama couldn't go, you know. So, you know, the it switched a little bit based on my athleticism and so forth. And people like Leon Douglas, Wendell Hudson, T.R. Dunn, uh, Wilbur Jackson, uh, Mike Washington, George P. I mean, those guys were the real pioneers. And all I did was came in on their coattail and been able to play and had played on a wishbone team. Uh, in high school, we won a state championship uh, in 1972. We were 13 and all. Uh, my quarterback ended up going to Auburn. The other receiver went to Alabama, so I had to compete against him once I graduated. But uh, it, it was a great time. But uh, I will say that even during the time of the 60s and early part of the 70s, sports became an equalizer, and that's where I kind of dived into. Sports has taken me to a lot of places that. 
Otherwise, I probably never would have gone to. I mean, obviously, I grew up in a very different time in this country as a as a white person growing up in the North. If it wasn't for sports, I never would have went down to the University of Miami and experienced an entirely new culture and meet guys that otherwise I might have never been around or been exposed to and met some of my dear lifelong friends and and shaped me as a person and learning what really was out there. And now through my 14 years in the NFL, I've shared locker rooms with guys from every walk of life, you know, every place in this country and every background. And and just to be able to share those stories and, and lean on that, like that is, I think we all share in, the, especially you mentioned in the last month or so, you know, that is kind of the dream that we all wish society as a whole could share. The conversations that go on in the locker room between people of different backgrounds, the relationships that are built, the trust that is built. It, it's a very unique thing. And I just think it's been so cool through these interviews to be able to kind of let people into what makes up an NFL locker room? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, as you talk about sports, uh, if we in America can move toward what it is to be in a locker room where everybody trusts each other, everybody's counting on each other, everybody respects each other, everybody realizes that in order for us to succeed, you know, we all got to be on the same page and uh, reaching for the same goals. And that's what a locker room is all about. Uh, and we need for America to become more like a locker room where there is respect for the guy that's sitting next to you, whether he's black or white, you know, respect that that guy and trust that that guy's going to go out there and do his jobs, which motivates you to go out there and do your job. So uh, I think sports uh, provides a, a good picture of the way America should be. And uh, hopefully, you know, with what's going on now, that maybe we can look back four or five years from now, that what is going on now could be the impetus for the change. And that when we look at it five years ago, changes have been made. I'm going to leave it right there with that, because I think you summed up what all of us would love to see play out in this country. You touched earlier, as we kind of transition into your high school recruiting days and into college, your high school quarterback chose Auburn and you were split between Auburn and Alabama, two in-state schools. You were highly recruited, highly sought after. And I remember reading somewhere that you said, I, if I went to Auburn, I was going to catch a lot of passes. I was going to have great individual success, but the Alabama program was all about the team. And you thought you had the greatest opportunity to win championships and compete at a high level. I'd love to just get a little insight into, you know, how hard was that decision to not just go with with who you knew and what you knew and just follow him to to Auburn? Well, uh, again, Phil, it's uh, Gargas was the quarterback and uh, he was a year ahead of me. So he was already at Auburn. And uh, so when it came down to recruiting, uh, you know, they were talking about Ozzie Newsom and Phil Gargas being the next Sullivan and Beasley. Pat Sullivan and Beasley had a great combination at, at Auburn. And say so we're talking about that. And I was enamored about that, you know, uh, about the production that I could come away because I really trusted Phil. I think Phil is one of the great leaders that I've been around in, in my life. And what a great competitor he was. And so it was such a joy to play for him. But when I went down to Alabama, it was something about winning, winning SEC championships, playing in bowl games and playing for national championships. 
relationships. It was just something about that that uh, really attracted me there. You know, there was you know no opportunities to say, hey, you're going to come in and play right away. We're just offering you a scholarship, and you know what? You can go out there and compete. And it's just something about that that attracted to me there. I had committed to go to Auburn. And uh, up until like two or three days before, John Mitchell, who's now a, a defensive line coach with the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, was working on the staff. He was the first black All-American at Alabama. He came up to the house and he sat down with me and my parents. And at the end of that conversation, I wanted to go to Alabama. So I had to call Coach Jordan and tell him that I had changed my mind and they, they, they continued to recruit me. But, but it was the best decision for me. You know, uh, I had to just go there and start from ground zero and work my way up. I did that. And uh, we know what the rest of the results was all about. Yeah, well, it didn't take you long. So you you go to Alabama your freshman year. You're their leading receiver. And, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on, you know, one of the most iconic names in in all of sports. So when I was graduating high school, I actually wrote a senior term paper. So this was 2003 on the book Junction Boys. Oh. about Bear Bryant taking his 1954 team. And that was my first really exposure to Bear Bryant, his coaching philosophy, just the the, the shadow he kind of cast across the country as an iconic figure. And here you are in, in the you know 70s now going to play for this guy. He'd already been there 20 years, countless championships. I can only imagine the impact that he has had on you to this day now as a personnel director, as a collegiate player, NFL player. I mean, what an unbelievable opportunity to to play for a storied program under one of the all-time legendary coaches that have ever been. Well, uh, the, the biggest thing about Coach Bryant is that uh, he was human. And he had, a, he had a, a great humility about himself, but he was a hard driver. And he always taught us, taught us to expect the unexpected. And not to ever be complacent. You know, he would say, can you give me 10% more, you know, today? Each day we go out on the practice field, can you just try to get better at 10% at something, whether it's blocking, running routes, or whatever it is. Just try to get 10%. You know, and and everything was about the team. If you were a selfish player, that you was not going to survive in that program. You had to understand the program was bigger than you, and winning was the most important thing about that program. And it was the lessons that he taught me are lessons that I lived by when I was playing with the Browns, when I was working in the front office with Coach Belichick, and then when I became the uh, the GM with the Baltimore Ravens, are the lessons that Coach Bryant taught me while I was there. And in my office, I think there's probably five pictures in here and three of them are of, of Coach Bryant. What sticks out the most about your interactions with him? Is there one thing that sticks out when you think about Bear Bryant? Sure. Uh, it was... Uh, you know, going into my senior year, uh, I had, you know, had been an All-American as a junior. Uh, agents were coming around telling me that, you know, I was going to be a number one draft pick. Uh, I kind of lost my way a little bit. Uh, wasn't showing up for workouts. If I did, I was half-assing them. And uh, we had senior day uh, before we would start the fall practice. And I uh, I was afforded the opportunity that I thought to take this great picture with Coach Bryant. But during that picture, uh, during, we had a conversation, and he talked about me losing my way. 
you know, uh, not doing the things that I had done my previous three years, you know, just anything that he thought that I was doing was embarrassing him. It was embarrassing myself. And it was embarrassing my parents. And, uh, you know, I, I sat there and I heard him and he, he said that if I didn't change, that he, he was not going to start me in the first game. He said, uh, you know, he said, you, you got to get back grounded. You're not grounded right now. And, you know, to that day, that three-minute, five-minute conversation that I had with Coach Bryant on that hot August day right before fall camp started actually propelled me to where I am today. That's a pretty powerful story. And I just think it's it's so cool to just hear about, you know, you hear about these kind of almost mythological type coaches. and But then just hear these real personal, you know, you said it before, the word human, these human stories that exist be- between a coach and a player. And I mean, that that's pretty powerful stuff. So as you're transitioning now from, you know, the star college player, you're kind of playing in a wishbone offense. And anyone who's watching football in 2020 is probably not even sure what that is. <laughs> so now you get drafted by the Cleveland Browns. So what is your first memory of when you were actually a tight end? Well, uh, you know, when I went to my first uh, minicamp uh, with the Browns, I played wide receiver. And we went through that camp, and I thought I had a, a good three days. But it was that, that, that following Monday, they kept the rookies there. They could do that at that point. And uh, that's when I got invited to Sam's office. And, and he told me, he said, uh, I think you could be a good receiver in this league. I think we're going to move you to the tight end position, and you can be a great tight end. And he said, we're moving you there to throw you the football. And he looked me in my eyes. He said, we will throw you the football. So I left there. I was fortunate enough that Rich Kotite was my uh, tight end coach and who had played in the league as a backup. But uh, he could teach me the fundamentals of the game. But they really allowed me to be the athlete that I was at the position. And that's why I enjoyed it, playing it, and I became a threat you know, within our offense. So just give people some perspective. So now it's 1978, you're a rookie, you're making this transition. When you looked around the landscape of the NFL, like who were the tight ends that not only they were trying to kind of mold you into this this role within the Browns organization, but you yourself looked at and said, all right, if I'm going to go and play this position, here are a few guys around the league that are doing it. And that's a little different from what I'm used to being a wide receiver. Yeah. uh, You talk about Raymond Chester. You talk about Casper. You talk about Jim Mitchell that played at Atlanta. You talk about Russ Francis. You know, those were the guys. You know, they were, they were had the size of a, a defensive end, and it was at 6'4", 6'5", and at 245 to 250, but they could run pretty much like a wide receiver. And so those were the guys that uh, I started to watch and to emulate and, and to see what they were doing. The biggest thing that's a little bit different in today's game that was back then is the, the Sam linebackers did a great job of holding guys up at the line of scrimmage. They didn't want tight ends to get down on the field. So you had to master your ability to release off the football. You know, if you didn't get a release, you got no balls. And uh, it really suppressed the uh, uh, the, the secondary for the, uh, for the receivers. So I worked on that craft. 
of being able to release. And uh, once you got a release, then you became a threat. But, uh, you know, you look back at, at Chester and Casper, and then Todd Christensen came along. Then Kellen was right after me, Dan Ross. You know, it, it was a lot of good tight ends. But at that t- point, we went from guys that was catching 30 or 40 balls to catching 60, 70, and 80s, and a very viable part of, of the offense because when we were able to get the matchup one-on-ones, you know, then they had safeties with basically miniature linebackers that were right. playing. Right. And they were more, you know, run support guys than cover guys. So we had a big advantage. Yeah, and a big thing we wanted to capture is I think the modern fan of football and an avid fan of the game that they see today, you know, they're used to Travis Kelsey and being out wide and maybe standing in a two-point stance. I know I've done a lot of that in my career. Yep. But, you know, when you talk about Sam linebackers holding you up, you know, most more times than not, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys were next to the tackle, hand yep. in the ground, yep. and you were starting from that position, which has kind of evolved over the years. It's just so it's so important to plant that in context that guys were having a thousand yards 30 years ago, 40 years ago, in essence, lining up six inches from the offensive tackle. <laughs> it's kind of it's it's unheard of. Well, but yeah, it, it was. But, you know, that's why, you know, if you had some quality receivers, that's why cover two was in vogue. And yep. Especially, you know, you look at the, the Steelers of the late 70s, they played cover two. And, but they had Jack Ham and Lambert. And, you know, those guys were unbelievable as far as, you know, trying to uh, maneuver and beat those guys. But the other part of uh, what they did with me in Cleveland is that we could go with the two receivers on one side and split me out on the other side. Yep. And then we would make the, as you know, you make the secondary declare. And if they put one of those uh, safeties that had them net rolls over there uh, <laughs> out there trying to cover me, then I knew where the ball was coming. I love that. That's been my favorite. One of my favorite things is get, I always say, get everybody out of the way, put everybody on the other <laughs> side of the field, make them declare. They want to put their corners over there. Do you want to leave a safety or a linebacker? Get everyone else on the other side of the field and let me go to work. So you're yep. preaching to the choir there. Um, <laughs> when, when I got drafted to Chicago in 2007, um, I was really fortunate to join a team that that had a lot of veteran players. Desmond Clark was a, was a veteran tight end, um, mm-hmm. really took me under his wing. Brian Erlacher, countless guys. You've been very vocal about Calvin Hill. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to recognize that name. Grant Hill was his son, the legendary yes. basketball player at Duke. You've touched a lot. He was 10 years your senior, Yale. You know, you guys, you talk, you guys were kind of from two different worlds, and you developed this friendship, and you really credit him to your success and learning what it meant to be a to be an NFL player and develop as a man. Touch a little bit on on the impact that that Calvin Hill had on you especially early in your career. Well, uh, he not only impacted me on the field, but he really impacted me off the field. And and the way I should uh, handle myself, the way I should handle my finance, the way I should just deal with people in general. Uh, He really was really was important with that. But the biggest thing he, he taught me is that you got to be a student of the game. You know, you got to understand the game. And understanding the game, I mean, you got to know what you're doing, what the other 10 guys on offense is doing, and then what the guys on the defense are doing also. So it makes the game fun when you're able to do that. But, you know, Calvin is a great friend of mine. He's still one of my mentors. I, you know, I talked to him just yesterday, uh, you know, about different things. But, you know, riding back and forth to, uh, to practice with him every day and hearing his stories and him just, you know, just soaking in what he had to say 
say, but he also was willing to listen to me and for some of the issues that I was dealing with and to be able to help me with those. I think those rides to practice stuck out because I think I read somewhere that he said when you used to drive to practice early on until you finally got a new car, those rides sometimes took a little long. Is that true? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we had a, had a car that all yeah. of a sudden, you know, I get up to about 60 miles an hour, and it just cut off, That's you know, what he said. and I don't know why, you know, <laughs> they never could tell me that, but, you know, so I, I would always drive on the, uh, the the lane that was closest to uh, the side, so that it was, something went off, you know, I could just pull off, and then I sat there for a minute, and it'd start back up, you know. I love so, that. So, yeah, but... <laughs> the humble beginnings, right? Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, so make sure you stay tuned for more from TE1. Welcome back to TE1. Let's get back into it. Your career speaks for itself. The one thing that sticks out from people that I've read up that have spoken about you and, and the person you were and the competitor that you were is everyone referred to you as a perfectionist. They talked about your attitude and your demeanor and everything was super important and you always had a purpose to everything you did. You know, as a perfectionist and someone who had unbelievable personal success, you know, what sort of lasting impact did that just kind of eat at you? Have you carried with you now through your personnel career that, you know, as a team, you never really were able to get to that the top of the mountain. I, I you know, I, I'm, I know myself. It it bothers me every day. I've never reached that pinnacle of success either. So I'd be just curious, knowing the type of person you are, you know, what what impact has that had on making you so successful now in this this next chapter of your life? Well, it, it, it dates back to my junior year when we won that state championship. That Saturday morning when you woke up, there was nobody else to play and nobody else to beat. We had accomplished it all. You know, we had beat everybody. And that's a great feeling. And I, I didn't get that at Alabama. And it didn't work out in Cleveland. But it has happened twice here when I was working for the Baltimore Ravens. It's such a great feeling when that night ends and you wake up that next day and you're the champ. It's nothing nothing else that you have to prove. Nobody you have ever have to play again in that season to, to keep you from being there. You are the champion. And that's the great, that's what you work for. That was the reason I played for 13 years. I was chasing that Super Bowl, you know, and when I got to the point that I didn't feel like in uh, 91 that uh, we were, they were going to be rebuilding the team, then, you know, and we were not going to be playing for uh, uh, the opportunity to go to Super Bowl, then that's when I retired. You know, it's great to sit there. And like I said, I've only done it three times uh, uh, as a junior in high school and then two times with the Ravens to sit there and and be the champion. That's one great feeling. That hits close to home with me because I I won a state championship. I grew up and played for my father in high school. In my senior year, we won a state championship. I enrolled at the University of Miami. At, come on the back end of them appearing in two national championship games. So here I am thinking, you know, at the time that was <laughs> yep. Alabama, right? Like yep, when, when exactly. I went to Miami yep. in the early 2000s, back-to-back national championship games, I figured out oh, I'll play for a couple, never made it back. I got drafted to Chicago in 2007, right after they appeared in the Super Bowl, never made it back. Eventually did make it back in 2015 and we came up short. So when we're hearing you kind of share your perspective, so you know the pain. I you know, know the, the pain. pain, man. I, <laughs> I know the pain. And, uh, oh, 
I'll tell you, <laughs> I, until people, until you, until people really hear guys like just really lay it out there and just, just explain just how important this is. And I think it's really cool to hear yourself and the other guys we've interviewed. Like this is not just a job. This is not just a no. paycheck. Away, no. Guys have lived and breathed this game for their entire lives. And and I know for me and for a lot of us, it's really all we knew. And uh, to I, I'm going into year 14, Ozzy. I hope. I'm hoping year 14 is my year because I don't know how many more I got left, but uh, okay. I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I, maybe, I we'll see, maybe we'll see each other. Maybe we'll I, see hey, each I'll other. I'll take it. You know what? Count me in. Hey, I, I would sign up for that right now. <laughs> the next chapter is something that I think really provides unique context, to, especially as it relates to this conversation, is now your, your story about retiring, going right into scouting, player personnel. So take us back. So 1995. You're at, you're out of the league for a few years and here you are. Little did you know the next 10 to 20 years journey that you were going to find yourself. You thought you were going to be in, in home and in, in Cleveland. Take us through that. That next couple of years was super interesting. Yeah, it was. I mean, those five years after I retired, uh, the year I retired, they hired Bill Belichick to be the head coach. And you talk about a learning experience to be around Bill. In those five years, Ernie, of course, he was the GM when we first started. And just to be in those meetings because, you know, I was coaching and also working in person. I was doing both. And, but to sit in those meetings and see how detailed he was and how much football that he knew. That, I mean, there was I don't know I could have been in a better position to learn from someone about how to go about doing it and then to apply my aspects to it. So I enjoyed those those five years with Bill. Uh, we are in a situation, I think we were four and two. We had made the playoffs the year before. Uh, Vinny Testaverde was our quarterback. And uh, then uh, the move was announced. And we're moving from Cleveland to Baltimore. And I had only played. I'd been in Alabama and I'd been in Cleveland. And in Cleveland, my mother had two sisters and a brother. So that was like a, a second home to me. So here I am, uh, faced with a situation, was asked by Mr. Modell, would you go to Baltimore with me? I said I would. And he said, he asked me if I wanted to be a coach or did I want to be in personnel? And I told him I wanted to be in personnel, so he said, I want to make you the head of personnel. Well, I, I stepped in some deep waters, but I, you know, I had used all of the things that I had been taught, and I depended on the people that I had around me. The guys that I had worked with, Phil Savage, Scott Pioli, uh, Jimmy Schwartz, uh, Ernie Plank, I mean, it was just an unbelievable. Kirk Ferentz, Pat Hill, all of those guys was the guys that I leaned on because we had all worked together under Belichick. And, and we got lucky, you know. <laughs> we had the fourth pick in the draft, and Jonathan Ogden, Ogden was the highest-rated guy. We took him, and then, you know, we ended up at 26. I think there was a guy by the name of Ray Lewis that was still on the board. And uh, we took him, and as they say, the rest is history. So here you are. You're saying, this is easy. I don't, why is everybody <laughs> making this so no, hard? It I, wasn't easy because <laughs> in the second round, I, uh, it was a tight end. I think his name Jason Dunn. I think it was okay. his name. And I wanted him, and I traded up uh, to get him. But Philadelphia took him right before I, you know, the pick before I. So I learned the lesson, you know, don't trade to that spot till your guy get there. So it was a lot of things to be great about, but it's also with some learning experiences also. Well, I think the, the fans in Baltimore, I think, look back and say, I think he got his first two picks right, right? You're judged by every, – every GM's judged by their first rounders, and I think uh, – 
not only that year, I, I can do off the top of my head. I mean, Ed Reed, uh, Joe Flat. I mean, the guys that you've drafted over the years, you, you've, uh, I think you got that part. I think you got that part down. The part I want to hear a little bit more on is so you overnight, in essence, you guys relocate to Baltimore as a young personnel director in the NFL, really trying to manage this entire organization in a very turbulent time. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. I mean, just give us a little insight into like what your day-to-day operation looked like. The idea that you were in like an old abandoned police barrack just seems so like hard to believe. A barbaric compared to where right? I am now in this oh facility. Oh my God, I, right? I, I can't, <laughs> but it's yeah, unbelievable. It was. I mean, we moved there. Uh, it was uh, only a few offices that we, we had to uh, occupy. Uh, so everybody was sharing offices uh, during that time. But, you know, it, what we did, I, I, we learned to trust each other. Uh, we were f- all facing the same thing of moving our families over here and, and then trying to have a draft and trying to get, uh, you know, get a football team. I don't even think we had a practice squad that first year, you know. Uh, that, that's how bad things were. You know, we, we had no colors. We had no name. Uh, you know, that, uh, that, that prison uh, football story uh, movie there, there you yeah, know. The, the Longest whatever. Yard. Yeah, you know, we were like them, you know, you know, just, you know, hey, just, you know, plain old black and white jerseys and and, and pants and so forth. And, but Ted Marchabroda did an unbelievable job, uh, you know, those first three years. And, and all we did was just, you know, hey, they say if you're going to start climbing a hill, don't look at the top, just start taking steps. And that's what we did. We just was putting one foot in front of the other and trying to get there. And uh, we were able to get there five years later. Well, you touched on it, mean, and and little did you know that five years later you were going to reach the top of that mountain. You hire Brian Billick as your head coach, and in his only second season, you guys are Super Bowl champs. Later on, you make another great hire. You hire um, John Harbaugh, and you end up winning another Super Bowl. So here you are, move, not only moving a franchise, but really starting from ground zero. It's almost like you, you were a startup college football program, and you were just trying to find your way. And in a relatively short period of time, you do climb that proverbial mountain and reach the top. Like, just how much satisfaction, everything you had been through growing up, everything you had been through in your college career and your playing days in the pros, like, did it compare to what you imagined it would feel like as a player? Did you get the same satisfaction as a per, as the GM and the personnel guy? Like, did it feel like you always dreamed it would feel to reach the top of that mountain? Again, it felt at a, at a bigger magnitude than it did when I won that state championship, but a much bigger magnitude. And in that I had my hand, my hand press was all over the franchise. Yes, it did feel like I had played in the game. You know, I was so much a part of it. But, you know, what we had went through because, you know, leaving Cleveland, People didn't like that, you know. Was, I would have to go back to see my family sometimes and some of the things I would hear, you know, because I had been a part of the, uh, of the, the group that moved over. But for us to be able to climb that mountain and to, to get there and the way we did it, you know, and, and a lot of credit goes to Brian Biller. We, we needed a voice. We needed a face. And Brian was that voice and that face. And, you know, he, you know, we were, we, he gave us the courage and a little bit of confidence that we needed as a, a franchise in which we were just starting out. Brian Billick gave us all of that. And I think guys fed off of that. And that's why we ended up with that first Super Bowl. 
when you talk about confidence and and somebody I've been really anxious to to kind of hear your your take on and your experience with um, who kind of exudes confidence in all he does, Shannon Sharp. Um, obviously, everybody knows his days from the Broncos, and then he signs a big free agent deal and comes um, to play for the Ravens and really continues his success like like nothing ever ended. And um, the one story that I, that sticks out was him breaking your record to set the NFL all-time leading receiver for a tight end. You walk into the locker room uh, after the game. How do you remember that conversation going? Well, uh, first of all, uh, once, he, once he made the catch out on the field, I went out there. They stopped the game. I went out there, and he presented me with the ball. Okay? Now, he and I had been bantering for years, you know, <laughs> uh, back and forth. Uh, and, you know, nobody can talk as much as Shannon. You were getting uh, him ready for Skip. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he, he could. I mean, the plane rides with him were uh, was just unbelievable. You're just talking. And, you know, so we always had to back and forth. I don't honestly know what I was saying. I do remember more that, you know, he handed me the ball, you know, right after he made the catch. They stopped the game. I don't remember what happened in the locker room, but, you know, his version is probably a very good version. <laughs> his version goes along somewhere along the lines. And whether it was in the locker room or on the field, probably is up in the air, but the version was he handed you the ball, gave him a hug, and you said to him, I'm still a better tight end than you. <laughs> and I am. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's so awesome, man. You know, we you've drafted Hall of Fame players. Uh, you've, you know, acquired, you know, Hall of Fame free agents. There's two names that stick out when, when I've, you know, read guys that have really made a lasting impact on you that you've worked with or that have been players or staff members or whatever, James Shaq Harris and John Wooten. And for context, uh, John Wooten was a teammate of Jim Brown uh, yep. back with the Browns. And he was really the legendary Cleveland Summit, where some of the all-time greatest athletes that were also very involved in the civil rights movement of the 60s. In 1967, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown. I mean, these names will live forever. He really organized that summit. I just think it's so relevant to today's time where you have athletes using their voice and 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 promoting a cause and a movement that's really taking root. And, and it's really been you know heavily rooted in sports. And um, but here we are, 50 years ago, there was a very similar time. And and I know that that John Wooten has had a huge impact on your career. You were fortunate to work together. Just talk about that a little bit. I, I think it's super relevant to today and and uh I'd love to hear more about him and, and your relationship. Well, uh, you know, it, it began uh, before they became employees for the Ravens when I would be at the Senior Bowl, be at the East-West game, uh, be at the Combine, and I, we would sit together, and I was soaking up all the knowledge that they both had, uh, uh, and they would be, you know, giving out little tidbits to it for me. And I think one of the most important hires that I made was uh, hiring Shaq Harris. Uh, Shaq was with the Jets, and uh, basically it was a switch. They took Scott Peel, and I got James Harris. And, and James, I think everybody in the building loved James. And he, he used to call it scrimmaging. You know, we'd go in his office and, and we'd scrimmage, you know. Um, and he had just a wealth of knowledge. He had a way of looking at things. You know, he would always say, hey, let's talk about it one more time, you know, to make sure we are. Uh, Randy Moss was one of the guys. He said, can we talk about Randy Moss one more time? You know, I never we'll forget that. And uh, But no, but uh, having both of those guys, you know, veteran guys, you know, it's like being in the locker room 
And when we when we got Shannon and we got Rob Wilson and we got Tony Saragusa on that 2000 team, they set they set the pace. That's what John Wooden and uh, Shaq Harris did for me. That's awesome. So what did he say about Randy Moss? Did what what was that well, conversation? He said, he said, "Can we look at him one more time?" Because you know we were we were thinking we were going to pass him, which we did. Okay, we passed him in the draft, but he wanted you know it was in the, one of those last meetings, and he said, "Let's discuss Randy Moss one more time." Well, he was on you know, to something, right? He, he was on to something. <laughs> yeah, what is it? The reason why we're going to pass this guy? You know. And uh, he was right. I love it. As you look over your years of, you know, since 1995, really being in control of an NFL franchise's draft and pre-draft process, explain to people not only what that process looks like as it pertains to all players, but but specifically for tight ends. Is there is there any guy that really sticks out to you that you say, I remember, you know, scouting him. I remember, you know, doing his draft right up. You know, he was a guy I thought was a can't miss or. You know, is are there any of those stories that you can put into context? Well, uh, in general, uh, Ted Marcher Broad, I asked him, I said, Coach, what do you want a football player and a football player? He said, find me somebody that loves the game. He said, they may not be fast enough. They may not be tall enough. They may not bigger, be big enough. But if they love the game, they're going to be able to play, and they can play at a very good level. So I always took that into in the context when I'm looking at a player, regardless of position, to find out, does this guy play with some passion? Does he enjoy Does he enjoy doing what he does? And does he work at his craft, you know, to get himself better? So that's just a general idea. But, you know, and, and looking at the tight ends over the, the course of uh, my career, I, it's hard for me to just come up with, with names, you know, and the majority of them, every time I looked at them, I got, well, I got no chance of getting them. That's probably been the toughest part is your guys like yourself and other players that I knew that was going to be good players in this league that I know I'm just going to be playing against them. And uh, But you come to realize that. You know, just try to find somebody that I think that could cover them. But uh, a lot of times that didn't happen. But, you know, but the tight end position has evolved. And now they're, they are weapons. You know, they, you know, they, defensive coordinators are spending extra time at night trying to find ways to deal with the tight end. You know, there's ways you can double a wide out, whether you got him in the slot or on the outside, but a tight end and that he can be in so many different positions and being able to come up ways with doubling the guy. And the guys are more athletic. You know, we all know that we probably, if this was the 60, we probably would be playing in the NBA. Yeah. But, you know, at 6'5 and 6'4, you can no longer play with your yeah. back to the basketball. No, we're point to the guards. Goal. We're point guards. <laughs> exactly. We're, uh, we're struggling to guard Russell Westbrook. No question Tony, about that. Tony Gonzalez had that exact same message. He said, yep. man, I, I knew my basketball days were over when I was 6'5", and the only guy in the court my size was the point guard. Yeah, exactly. So so that's what it has evolved. And, you know, and when you got a good tight end, then your offense can go to work. You know, and we, yep. you know, we've been well, you fortunate got, with – You had with, three with, of them. I had Shannon. Yep. I had Eric Green here. Yep. They're Todd Heap. And now we got, you know, Mark Andrews, and we just uh, we had to, uh, uh, we just had Hayden Hurst, you yep. know. Uh, we got Nick Boyle. Uh, when you got a good tight end, then your offense can, can work efficiently, you yep. know, because it, it puts some pressure on the defense, uh, a lot of pressure on the defense and what they're going to be able to do. But I, I enjoy it, and I will say this, and I've said this uh, a lot of times, when I put on a tape, 
The first position I look at, whether I'm look, supposed to be looking at a defensive player or an offensive player, I look at the tight end. You know, <laughs> you and me I, both. I do. <laughs> I don't do it for. I don't evaluate for a living, but you and me both. <laughs> so. You, you talked about it. You you guys, as of last year, I know you tr- you traded Hayden Hurst, uh, your former first round pick this year. But last year, I mean, you know, one of the guys that you got right, and you were probably the only guy who was right because I know there was a lot of questions when you drafted Lamar Jackson. Um, you know, where was he going to play? How was that process? You still had Joe Flacco. Um, I remember when the, his rookie year when you guys came to play us in Carolina, and he had a little bit of that wildcat package, and it yeah. gave us fits for a little bit. I don't know if anyone, I mean, you obviously did, but I don't know if anyone else around the league imagined his growth and maturity would just would, would happen so fast, and lo and behold, he's the NFL MVP. In an offense that was very unique, uh, Greg Roman implementing that kind of RPO, zone read type stuff. To, you might to call act. it the wishbone. It looks very similar to a 1970 <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> and it's funny. And and you could, and of course, Lamar is the reason that it goes, right? He's yep. the juice. But the way you guys use those three tight ends together, and then you had Hollywood Brown on the outside, it was a very new age approach to offensive football in today's modern era. And here you are doing it with a rare athlete at quarterback and three tight ends who had huge roles in that system. Yeah, you know, all the credit goes to to Greg Roman and and to John. And they decided they was not going to change Lamar. They was going to embrace who Lamar was and allow him to be the quarterback that he could be and build around what he can do. And having the three tight ends, because if you put three tight ends on the field and they want to match up with, you know, with an extra linebacker or something, we split out one of those guys and we, we had an advantage. So, but Greg and the offensive staff, they did a great job of that, uh, of utilizing Lamar. We ran the football. You know, if you run the football, then you can throw it when you want to. Uh, the, the whole credit, but it, it starts with John Harbaugh saying that, you know what, we got Lamar and we're going to let Lamar be Lamar. We're not going to try to turn him into Joe Montana or Dan Marino or John Elway. We're going to allow Lamar to be Lamar. And that allowed him to be to thrive at what he does. And then Greg put the package around him. And I, I just think it's important for people to understand what you just said is very rare. To, for coaches to just allow – it happens here and there, and, and you guys deserve all the credit in the world, but I know firsthand – Personally, my time in Chicago ended because we had a coach who who fit who thought the tight end position felt you know kind of fell into a certain mold yeah. from his history and whatnot, and ended up you know shipping me out of town. I think it's so refreshing, and and I feel like as as the years have gone on and and as of today, more and more coaches are starting to have that philosophy instead of saying, "Hey, go out and get me," you know, Ozzy, go out and get me a guy who looks like this and can do this. Instead of saying, "Get me great football players," and if I'm worth a damn as a coach. I'll find a I'll way find to make way. them work. Right. You know, we, we, we're getting away from guys saying, find me somebody to fit my system. Yep, No, exactly. we're going to find you some good football players. And then you, you can be able to adapt them to a system to where you're getting – the key is, can you get the most out of an individual player and how you're going to be able to do that? I think that's the way the game has evolved right now. That's why so many tight ends are having such success because they're taking these athletes and they're utilizing them. And now with the advent of Lamar and some of these other quarterbacks and what they're doing, it's making our game more exciting, more entertaining, and I think we'll enjoy it. 
Yeah, I, I loved watching you guys last year. It kind of brought back memories when we were rolling with Cam his first couple years in the league, and he was doing all the zone reads and the design QB runs, and yep. the tight end was catching 85 balls. Man, those were <laughs> those were good times. Now, I've been waiting 14 years, and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. You can be honest. You're not going to hurt my feelings. In 2007, you had the 29th pick in the draft. Uh-huh. I went 31. Okay. How close were you to taking me over Ben Grubbs? Were you close or not? <laughs> uh, well, you were third on the list. All right. All right. I'll take Joe that. Joe Staley was one. Ben Grubbs was second. And you was third. Now, did we have Todd Heat? You did have Todd at the time, yeah. That has, that's why you were third. I'll take that. Those are two okay. good. That's, I'll take that. That makes yep. me feel a lot better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I've been waiting a long time to get that clarity. But... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to let that be the last part of this interview. And in closing, again, I know I started off the top of the interview just by recognizing how important you are to this conversation. Your resume, your accomplishments speak for themselves. And you're the first person that I've interviewed that actually is currently working in an NFL building in the midst of this (laughs) chaos. I, I, I will save that conversation for another day. But I just want to thank you for taking the time. As I said, this this conversation would not have been complete without you in it. And to just share your story and share your history and, and perspective on not only the NFL, but of life and specifically the tight end position has been a treat for me to have this conversation with you and hopefully is a treat for everybody who tunes in to listen. So thank you so much. And thank you, Greg. You did your homework. And I appreciate that. And you made it a very easy conversation. But we see the game the same way. You know, I see it the same way that you see it. You see it the same way I see it. And you made this a very easy conversation because you did your homework. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate you and uh, appreciate your time. And hopefully we cross paths here uh, this season sometime. Nice. In the Super Bowl, I'll, sign, I'll take it right now. I will, too. Count me in. All right, done. I'll see you <laughs> it's there. It's in Tampa. I'll, I don't I'll, mind going back to Tampa. Nope, I'm in. I'll see you there. <laughs> okay. Something that jumped out to me in, in my discussions with Ozzy. He was feeling himself a little bit, felt like he was getting out of his lane. And here's the legendary Bear Bryant giving you wise words. I mean, to think that Ozzie Newsome and all he accomplished, both as a player and now as a team executive, may not have happened if it wasn't for Bear Bryant, of all people, one of the most legendary historic figures in the game of football, putting his arm around him and just kind of whispering a little nugget in his ear to get him back on track. To me, those things are fascinating, and to be able to hear it through Ozzy's perspective himself was just an absolute pleasure. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and tell your friends. Next episode, I'm talking to Shannon Sharp, so make sure to listen in. TE1 is a Blue Wire podcast. 